All right, if you've got a Bible, I hope you do. Ephesians 2, that's where we're going to be today. We're launching from there. We're going to read a lot of scripture today, so buckle your seatbelts. And if you don't have a Bible, we're going to have it up on the screen. And also, just so you know, for, inf- for your information later on, if you ever forget your Bible or you don't have one, there's always some on the back table. You're welcome to use those. You're welcome to take it. Um, it's kind of a cheap little Bible that we bought in bulk. And if you want a nicer one, uh, Lost and Found has some good ones. Scratch out the name. You should be ready to go. All right, Ephesians 2 is uh, where we are launching from today. We've been asking ourselves this question, how do we grow in Christ? It's what we're calling our grow series, a journey towards Christ-likeness. And so we're, we're trying to figure out what are the means of grace? How, how does a person who becomes a Christian then grow in Christ-likeness? And, and that's an important question because what's at stake is our ability to be an effective witness for Christ. Like it, you know, this is one of those things that's it's hard for me to understand, that Christ is sovereign, he, he does whatever He wants, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, this Trinitarian God that we have, is more sovereign than we could imagine, but yet, He invites and makes the church part of His plan. And so, what's at stake is, is the mission of Christ and our ability to be Christ-like, because that's the primary way that He wins a lost world to himself. And so what's at stake here when we ask this question, how do we grow, is the mission, the growth of the gospel and the kingdom and the church in our day. And so we've looked at a couple things. We looked at um, the necessity of growth. We looked at the fact that we need to live lives of repentance. And we looked last week at the fact that we need to be people of the book, center our lives on the Bible. Today we're going to look at this idea of community And the idea of being vitally and vibrantly connected to a local church. Now, I know that as I get into this, some of you are going to say, oh, yeah, he's a pastor. And, of course, he's going to just preach about coming to church. That's that's not what really my heart is. I mean, you know, in fact, I hate that thing that we ask one another in the South here. Like, where do you go? You know, I mean, don't we say, where do you go? Well, I go go to the dry cleaners to pick up my clothes. I, I go to the store to get top ramen when my wife is out of town that's where i go but but i don't go to church like as if it's a place where i just just show up i mean we're a church together and so we're going to talk about the the benefits of community today and here's what we're going to do i'm going to take kind of a of a thirty thousand foot flyover we're going to work our way through a couple chapters in the bible that I think are very instructive for us about the importance of the church and in the life of a believer and community and being connected to the body of Christ. So we're going to do kind of a theological flyover at 30,000 feet. We're going to move through two passages that are pretty lengthy, pretty quickly. Then we're going to, we're going to descend a little bit to about 100 feet. And we're going to fly over to what that looks like in the life of a believer in a church like Crosspoint. And then we're going to land this bad boy and we're going to receive communion together which is a beautiful representation of the body of Christ, this community that God has called us into. So let's get going. But before we do that, let me pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you again for the privilege we have to worship you and to gather. There are people that are all over this world worshiping you, that need to know about you. There's underground churches in China that are working off of one sheet of the New Testament when we have Bibles all over the place. So God, would we, would we not isolate you to some little cultural Western ethic, but God, would we realize that we are serving and worshiping and learning about and leaning forward into 
the God of all creation today from every, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every, every person. You are the Lord over everything and over the whole universe and beyond the universe and beyond what we can even imagine. So God, would you settle our hearts now into the depth and the gravity of this moment and would you, God, would you free me from uh, an undue amount of self-consciousness or awareness and would you let me get lost in communicating what I believe is your truth for these people that I love so much and then God, would we, would we absorb it? Would we run with it? Would the Holy Spirit do what I cannot do and would we, would we digest your truth and then God, would we respond to it, I pray, as we receive communion and as we leave this place? And joy, and I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians is in the New Testament. Midway through, kind of, you got the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, and then Ephesians. It's written by a man named Paul to a group of people in a city called Ephesus. They're called the Ephesians. They're a group of people probably like us. The people that received this letter are probably a house church that had less people than are in this room right now. And Paul is writing them a letter. And if I was just thinking about this as I was this week preparing for this message and thinking about important passages on the church. This chapter, Ephesians 2 is probably the chapter or the portion of scripture that I have spoke out of most or preached out of most here during our, our years together, three, four years here at Crosspoint. This has been the chapter that I've been in most. I mean, it is one of the, it is one of the mountain peaks of scripture. It's one of the most rich, beautiful, unbelievably deep chapters in the whole Bible. In fact, it'd be a great chapter to memorize. In fact, if if, I'm throwing down the gauntlet. Anybody that wants to memorize chapter 2 of Ephesians, let's do it. And by the end of the summer, we'll rock it out. And if you do it and I don't do it, I'll, I'll do 100 push-ups and I don't know, whatever. But, but Ephesians 2 would be a great chapter to memorize. And Paul speaking to this group of people who previously were Gentiles now have come into faith in Christ. And in this chapter, he's explaining it's probably one of the most beautiful representations and most explicit representations of the gospel in all of Scripture in one passage. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, are probably the most powerful and thorough statement of the gospel in the Scriptures in one segment. All right, so let's go, or else we're not going to have time for all this. Chapter 2, verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He's writing to people just like us. This is a wildly unpopular theme. It means that we are dead in our trespasses, that sin, what, what every person in the world, Romans 5 says, shares this nature with our first Father, which is Adam, who sinned, who, and that sin brought in death, and now we are partakers in that nature. And all of us, even though we don't feel like it, I mean, we're emotionally alive, we are physically alive, we are spiritually dead. So before you become a Christian, you weren't just in need of assistance, you were in need of rescue. Like, I know that I know that's wildly popular to say to a bunch of middle-class, pretty Americans who think that, you know, we're pretty good people. But we, we are far from God. We are separated from God. We are not neutralized. We're not injured. We don't have a clipped wing. Before somebody comes to Christ, we are dead in our trespasses, in our sins. Verse 3, among whom we all lived, all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That includes 
everybody. That Again, that's an unpopular idea, but it's a biblical idea that before God makes us alive, we are, we are dead in our sins. And we're not just people that need assistance, but we need a rescue. And then in verse 4, it says, two of the sweetest words in all of the scriptures, it says, but God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So it's kind of like that that story in the book of John where Lazarus is dead in the grave and Lazarus isn't flopping around having a bad time and he doesn't need a little help to get his marriage in better order. He he hasn't made some bad financial decisions and now all of a sudden he's going to get his life together and he comes to Jesus. He's dead. He's in the grave. Jesus shows up, speaks life, and he comes back to life. And that's what happens for us when we're Christians. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's important. And so he's speaking to a group of people who are thinking that maybe righteousness or right standing with God is won by some religious duty. In their time, it was some sort of animal sacrifice or some sort of offering to the priest in our time it's some sort of maybe religious duty maybe coming to church or maybe some good deed or giving to a charity and god says that those things are not what saves you but it's solely by the grace of christ verse six and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in christ jesus so that In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So he saved us for a purpose so that through us as individuals, and we'll see in just a moment, as a group of people, God might display his glory to the whole world, to the nations, to the to the universe. So there's a purpose beyond our salvation other than just our own personal rescue. And then in verse eight, it says, Some of the most important words in the whole Bible. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is really, really important. Because I think in our church in particular, we put a big emphasis, and I don't apologize for this at all. We put a big emphasis on grace. That it's not religious works. It's not church attendance. It's not, you know, it's not giving. It's not helping old ladies across the street with their bag of groceries. It's no... It's no amount of religious work that you can do that saves you solely by grace. However, that grace is appropriated. It is made yours by faith. And God never rescues a person apart from their willing response of faith. You, you have to, and that's not just cognitive agreement. Okay, it's not just belief about some fact faith is more than that because if you if you ask the average american on the street in fact these gallup polls and barna's research this this group of of, that does christian research you ask like 80 something percent of america would say that they believe in jesus that they believe in the message of christianity but i dare say that not 80 something percent of america is actually born again christians and so faith is more than believing. I use this analogy often, but, um, and I'm going to get it right this time because some of you political neatniks, I'm sure, will email me if I mess this up. I used to say that if Fidel Castro, he's the president of Cuba, I realize he's no longer the president of Cuba. It's now his brother, Raul Castro. Okay, he's the, he's the leader of Cuba. Um, I believe that he is the leader of Cuba, whatever he is. But just because I believe that does not make me a Cuban. In order to 
become a Cuban, you got to move, you got to try, you got to go and give allegiance to Raul and the the party of the regime there in order to be Cuban. I mean, I believe that that that. Uh, Vladimir Putin is, he's not the prime minister of Russia anymore, whoever the new guy is. Right? He, I believe that that guy, so, but that doesn't make me a Russian. Right? I mean, I'm from the country of California, but just believing that, that there's, okay, I, alright. And so you gotta, you have to have faith, you have to put trust, not just cognitive belief. Everybody believes in Jesus. The Bible says that even the demons believe and tremble. So just believing, giving agreement to the Christian message as if it's just some ethic is not saving faith. So when grace hits your heart and brings you back to life, you must respond to Him with faith. Not perfection, not your works, but with an allegiance, a decision of the mind to say that I will turn from self-reliance and turn towards trust completely in God. That's, That's saving faith. And then it begins this process of sanctification in your life where you grow in holiness and ever-increasing pursuit of Him. That's saving faith. Not coming to church. Not growing up in, in the South in the Bible Belt. Not just agreeing with it, but lining your life up over the course of time in responsive trust. That's faith. You got that? Okay, I'm just could go on a little bit further. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of of works, so that no one may boast. For we are, and listen to this, this verse 10 is so beautiful, because, you know, this faith, this salvation that we have is not just meant for ourselves. Like, you know, just this little, this mythological idea of faith is personal. No, it's not. It is to be lived out. You have to receive it personally. And you have to respond to it personally, but you live it out within the context of community and what God wants to do in you to show the world. So he says in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's keep going. Speed up a little bit. Verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh. So he's speaking to people who are Gentiles, who are not God's people of the Old Testament, which were the Jews, who now Christ has come to die for the Jew and the Gentile. He's making two people that hated each other, one in Christ. They were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Don't get too hung up on that. That just means that the Jewish people who were marked by this symbol of circumcision used to call the Gentiles the people of the uncircumcision. So it's kind of like us calling you know, people, non-Christians, and if we're Christians, so which was made by flesh, by flesh, by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So before we became a Christian and received grace and then responded in faith, we had no hope and we were without God. But now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. So in other words, he's taking these two groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles, 
who hated each other. He has broken down the wall that separates them, which was sin. And he has made them into one. So he's made them into one man. And so in our context, he has taken those of us, which was all of us at one time in our life, if we're Christians, that did not know him. And he has broken down the hostility between us and the people of God. And now we are one body together. Verse 16. So that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached... And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both, all of us, have access in one spirit to the Father. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So here's what I'm saying as I breeze through one of the most theologically rich chapters in the Bible that we could spend months on. I'm saying as a 30,000 feet flyover idea here is that God, if you are a Christian, he has saved you so that he might bring you into a family, a group of people, which is this beautiful thing called the church, which is, exists in many different forms. It's the church of all time, all people that have ever known Christ as their Savior, the people that have gone before us that have died. It's the people that all around this world are, are worshiping Jesus, that are born-again Christians, that live in every country on this earth. It's the people in our whole community, in our region. It's the church in Georgia, the church in Columbus. And for us, it's also this group of people that we identify with as our local church. For us, it's called Crosspoint. And so, the point I'm trying to make here in, in, in Ephesians chapter 2 is that he saves people as individuals and brings them into a family, which is the church. And so if, let me just say that if the church is not important to you, then you're, you're cutting against the clear point of scripture that says the church is very, very important. God, he saves you to be part of a family, not just to be an isolated pod of grace in your life. Okay, you got that. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which is to the left. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 12. I'm going to read this quickly because I'm trying to make one point. Again, we could settle down and make a whole bunch of points about this passage, but we're going to go through it quickly. And I'm really just wanting to make one point. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. All right, so you've been saved, and then you've been brought into a family. And you're now part of something that's a lot bigger than yourself. And that family has a purpose which is to show Christ's mercy and his immeasurable riches to the world. So there's this plan that goes far beyond just me and my salvation and my, my good, quiet time with God. He brings me into a family. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 20. It picks up on this theme of us being a body together. And he says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot, think about this as I'm, as I'm reading these body parts here, just, just think of sort of the comedy of these statements, how ridiculous they are to draw this 
the ridiculousness of not being connected. Listen to this, verse 15, picture a foot. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in one body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. He continues with this this body part analogy here. He says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, which is the church, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers... All suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And then verse 27, he says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. I think, I think the point here, we, again, we could spend weeks on this and all that he's saying here. But for our purposes, flying over 30,000 feet, to say that you can live a healthy life, for a Christian to say that they can live a healthy life kind of disconnected or unconnected or casually connected from the body is as ridiculous as a finger who would say, I can live healthy severed from the hand. I mean, that's, that's crazy. And we all would realize that, but, uh, but yet we kind of oftentimes live our lives like that. So 30,000 feet is that, that God has saved us in Christ with this gospel and he has not just saved us to be individuals that live together in isolation, but he saved us to be part of a body that live life together in such a way that we simply cannot be healthy without vibrant, vital connection to one another. Okay, let's descend this plane a little bit now from 30,000 feet. Let's come over 100 feet or so and fly over cross point. And let me give you three things that, um, that I think we need to do. Now, I, I want to, um, they all start with the same letter. And for the past four years, I have mocked that type of preaching because I think it's silly, because I think that when preachers do that, and if your favorite preacher has everything that starts with the same letter, I apologize. But I think what happens is, is you tend to like go after the, the word that starts with the letter than what's actually in the Bible. So I think that, well, anyway, you get my point. So I'm going to put myself under discipline for doing this um, later on, but, uh, but but here's three things that I think every Christian needs to do in Crosspoint and in any church. Three things you've got to do. You've got to do. And they're kind of elementary, but I think they're incredibly, incredibly vital. The first thing is, is that, is that you've got you to gotta come regularly. Like it has to be part of your, your priority. It has to be part of your schedule, like coming to gathered worship. To the, to the assembling together of the local expression of the church is, listen, and I don't want to be the, the preacher dude, that, but it is indispensable in the life of a believer. 
Now, I know people are raising, ah, yeah, I mean, that's a preacher just wants you to come to church. Is just being a Christian coming to church? No, of course not. But it is an indicator of your priority and how connected you are to the body. It's kind of like this analogy I've used before. Like, like it would be like, like trying to define a husband, whether or not he's a good husband, by whether or not he kisses his wife. Well, you know, last, last night I came home from, from being out of town for three days. And when I walked through that door, <laughs> I, I kissed my wife and I, I kiss my wife every day. I mean, we kiss, we hug, that's what we do. Now, being a husband is not just defined by kissing your wife. It's just the outflow of what husbands should do to their wives, right? 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 <laughs> Gee, we got more problems than I thought. But that's kind of like... Like, we're not defining Christianity by coming to church. That's ridiculous. But it's just like an obvious overflow. But, but it needs to be stated. Like, you, you come because when you come, you, you expose yourself to the energy of gathered worship. There is some dynamic that happens when we all gather together and when we all sing. Do you not get energy from being together in a room with a couple hundred people that are singing, that are in agreement, that are trying to live for Christ? Isn't that just, isn't that just, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doesn't that's you need that. You need that regularly. You need that weekly at a minimum. You have to have it. You cannot go without it. You have to have it. You have to as a Christian it is necessary for your soul to not only gather to sing and to worship God but to listen to the preached word. You cannot. And look, this is not an endorsement for my vocation. It is simply biblical truth. You cannot live healthy apart from the preached word. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians that it pleased. I'm so encouraged by this verse because I feel so foolish often. But it says that it pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save people. Let's think about this for a second. Here's our message. I heard this reinforce this conference when we were... We were at this conference this past week, Robert and I. This is our message. This is what we do. We sing a couple songs. Very few of us can actually sing. We get together, we sing. Then a guy gets up and he speaks from a Bible. And the major, the major message of this Bible is this, um, that God in his infinite wisdom created humanity, which in his providence and in his mysterious wisdom, he allowed, in fact, in some sense, permitted, ordained, didn't sneak up on him. He allowed us, permitted our sin for some mysterious reason which we cannot explain, which then brought about his wrath and our death. And now um, this God becomes a man and he lives a perfect life. He's born in a manger. He's the God of everything, but yet he humbles himself and is born as a helpless babe in a manger, lives in an obscure nation in Palestine, grows up, is beaten up by the Romans, dies on a cross, get this now, comes back to life, and then ascends, floats up into heaven, and says, wait for me, I'm coming again, and until I do come again, endure hardship and trial and suffering and persecution and martyrdom. (laughs) And, And at some point, Unbeknownst to you, I'm coming back on a horse. 
That's what we believe. I don't know if you know that or not. Okay, and okay, let's just admit that's foolish. That's foolish. And that's what makes it so beautiful. And you need to hear that over and over and over again. You need to hear that a God entered into human history, that he took upon our sin, that he takes it and he carries it away, that then the righteousness that he lived in, the life that we should have lived, he now gives to us when we put faith in him. And then you need to hear all of the good doctrine and the good teaching that flows out of that. You need to hear the gospel over and over and over again. And the truth that flows out of that, you need to hear it. And the preached word comes and it softens your heart. And you need to be in the room with a group of people who are gathered gathering together around that word it is necessary for your soul you got to have it you got to have it so you got to come you got to come listen if 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 and i realize i'm talking to all the people that are here now <laughs> you're like we're here dog i mean i get you um if listen but maybe maybe we're here on one of your one out of four sundays and you just happen to be catching this. Um, you can't live a healthy life when you prioritize other stuff. You cannot live a healthy Christian life. We've got a little bit of a podcast audience. So if you're listening to this on the podcast, and you're just chilling out, and you're at the river today, and you're just doing whatever you want to do, like you cannot live a healthy life because your salvation, if you are saved, has terminated on you. And you've you, you got to live life with a group of people. You've got to come. You've got to come. The second thing that you've got to do is you've got to connect. You just have to connect. And I want to speak to two groups of people here on this. Number one, I want to speak to the people that would call Crosspoint home. You have to make connection with people that are not just part of your circle of friends, a priority in your life in order for us to be a healthy body. Like you have to be, at some point, I mean, it's like you... It's kind of a weird analogy, and I'm just thinking about it right now, so it's probably kind of weird and gross and wrong. But you, 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 like you start off as a finger, and then as you grow, you become, like, you become like the forearm, and then you become like the shoulder, and then you become like the torso. And if you've been around here for a while, you're, you're, not, just the, you're not just the fingernail that can get clipped off. You're, you're part of this gig. But the deal is, is when you become part of the body now, you, you're one of the limbs that, that reaches out and, and, and grabs a hold of people to help them feel. But, but what happens a lot of times in churches is we, we kind of get comfortable with our little group and, and we don't really help people connect. Can I plead with you? Can I plead with you? You've been here for a while. Just help connect. How can you do that? First thing you can do is come a little bit early and just kind of have your head on a swivel. Just, just look for people that seem a little nervous and lost and out of place. Go after them and, and like, don't get goofy with them. You know, just saunter up to them and like, hey, how you doing? You know, don't, you know, Christians, Christians like can be the most awkward social people in the world. You know, just play it cool and just like go up to them. Hey, man, you look, I haven't seen you. And if they've been here for a while, then so what? You get over that awkward moment, like, dude, I helped start the church. Where you been? Well, I sit on the other side. I mean, you know, so, so then you just. And it's like, oh, well, good. Well, let me find your name. And then you kind of get out of the little sort of spiritually incestuous pool that you only swim in. That's unhealthy. It's like unhealthy. So like the onus cannot be on just a few of the people to connect people. 
It can't be. For us to be healthy, you've got to connect. So, so, so onus number one is on the people who have been here for a while, that this is their home. Connect, help. Look, and you're not going to, be, you're not going to connect with everybody, but just a smiling face, a friendly greeting, just will, will, will break down barriers for a person to be able to receive in this environment. The second thing is if you're, if you're new, like, like meet us halfway. Like I know, I know it's awkward walking into a room and we make, we, we really intentionally don't try and do like the dorky visitor stuff where we, you know, what's your name? You know, stand up. We've got Joe here today. Three favorite colors. Where are you from? And we don't do that. Except if you're my dad, <laughs> we do. But, but come on, come on, lean forward a little bit. Here's the one thing you can do if you're new. Fill out a card. And here's what will happen. Nobody's going to show up at your door this afternoon with stale cookies. We're not going to do it. But we might. I'm sorry, that was a blast from my past. I shouldn't have said that. It's good for some churches. But we'll give you a call. We might email you. If you show up again the next week, we'll learn your name. If you show up again the next week, hey, we're saying maybe this person's in. We'll try and connect you. If, if you put down your name on the little sheet and that was earlier in the service and now the rest of the service has wigged you out and you wish that you had to put it down and you want to go find that bag and take your card out. And then we call you and you're like, oh, you never answer the phone. We'll get the idea. We're not going to hunt you down. So connect, like push, you've got to connect. Listen to me, listen to me. Whether it's here or somewhere else, connecting to a local body of Christ, which is a local church, is a necessity for your soul. You cannot do without it. You cannot do without it. Don't date the church like she's a high school girlfriend or boyfriend. At some point, you've got to go in, settle down, Kiss her or him and marry that place. To be, to shop around, it's like spiritual infidelity. It is terrible for you. It's terrible for your soul. Because nobody knows you. And when you get sick, nobody, nobody comes and ministers to your soul. And when you're living in sin, nobody calls your bluff. And when you're not reading your Bible, you don't have anybody to press into your life and say, Hey dude, how are you? Where are you? It is, it is disastrous for your soul to live on the edge of the church and be a kid who grew up in the Bible Belt whose grandma started a Baptist church. Who cares? You've got to connect. It is, it is, it is necessary for your soul, whether it be this place or other, go to a place where the Bible is preached, where Jesus is worshipped, where they don't just talk about being a good little Johnny or Susie, but where they talk about the cross and go to that place and give your life to it. Give your life to it. The church is a mess. Every church is. Even this one. And I know, I started, it's a mess. And every other church is a mess. Give your heart to a church, man. You've got to. You've got to connect. And the final thing is, is contribute. Contribute when you get to that church and you make a decision on a place. Like lay open your life to that place. Give. Give of your time. Give of your treasures. Give of your talents. Serve in the nurseries. Join a life point group. Join the church and become a life point group leader, which can not necessarily doesn't have to be a great Bible study, it can be just opening your home to a group of young people who need a place to hang out. 
or it can be just a group of people that are your peers that get together to talk about the message on Sunday. Just think about and reflect Christ and his glory, but contribute, contribute, contribute. When you come and you go and you're like a, like a little ninja, you know, that, that just sort of comes and goes, comes and goes. Nobody really knows your name and, and then you know, you're never really in and you're not kind of just sort of fighting for a way to, to pour out your life into a place. You know what happens is it teaches you to become selfish. It's a terrible spiritual habit to get into. So you've got to come and you've got to fight. I realize we've got to get better as a church to find out ways to help people contribute. But listen, we are an up-and-coming young church. We have no established paradigm. We don't have the way that it used to be. So if you've got a burden for something that you want to do, run it by us. And we'll, if it if it's, sounds good, we'll do it. If it's a little off, we'll say, hey, we love your heart, but maybe you should be doing this. But come on. Come on, contribute, man. We know how to do that in every other area of our life. But when it comes to church, for some reason, we just wig out and act like, oh, my gosh, I'm not good enough. Exactly, you're not good enough. And you've been saved by grace. None of us are good enough. Don't you realize what we read at the beginning is none of us are good enough. That's the whole deal that we've been saved by grace. Come, contribute. Come, connect, contribute. And let vital connection to a local body of Christ nourish your soul it's the soil that the seeds of God in our life grow it's the local church let's land this thing now and read a passage out of 1 Corinthians 11 and then receive communion together and I'll go quickly 1 Corinthians 11 one chapter over from where we were just a second ago verse 17 But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. So what's happening here is Paul is instructing the Corinthian church about when they receive communion, which is the Lord's Supper. They would gather together. The rich Christians would be catering in Carabas, and they'd be selfishly hoarding their feast. And the poor Christians would be picking out of the dumpster behind Hart's Chicken, and they would be bringing their stuff. And then the rich Christians would not... Like, really care. It was just kind of all about them, you know, smacking down on the, on the Parmesan from Carabas. And home boy over here is picking off the little bit of chicken from Hart's dumpster. And so he says in verse 18, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Some of you are white, some of you are black, some of you are rich, some of you are poor, some of you are from this neighborhood, some of you are from that neighborhood, some of you went to Jordan, some of you went to Columbus, you know, some of you are from Auburn, some of you are Georgia, some of you are from Southern California. And I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now, in this particular situation, he's talking about selfish, rich Christians coming and not paying attention to the other Christians who are poor and needy and just kind of having their little love feast in the gathered worship time. Of course, we don't do that because I don't think any of you brought a sack lunch with you today. If you did... Whatever, but I don't think that's the issue. But the issue for us is, is that we come and we make Christianity selfish. We make it kind of about us. And we neglect the people that are around. And Paul is busting their chops about this. And then he says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body 
which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So what he's saying is there's a way that you should be doing it, is you should be coming together in this humble unity where you're gathered together to look out for the interests of one another better than your own interests. And then you receive this very humble little meal where you're breaking bread and you're remembering, remembering this grace, this work of Christ on the cross that took the penalty, that took the wrath of God and removed it for all of us that would have faith in Him. And you're remembering Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, where you're remembering how good God was to us. And it's creating this awestruck humility where we're loving one another and remembering what Jesus did for us. And then we're taking this cup, which represents his blood. And we are together, together as one unified, gathered body, proclaiming this, this message to the nations. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. And what I think he's talking about there is he's talking to Christians. He's not talking to ignorant unchristians. He's talking to Christians who are selfishly misrepresenting what it means to be part of the body of Christ. Verse 28, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. In other words, when you gather together as a church, love one another deeply. Be about something other than just your personal salvation. Come regularly. Connect. Get outside of your box. Contribute. Make your life a conduit of God's grace and blessing, not a cul-de-sac, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. And so we're landing this now at the end of this gathering. We're going to receive communion together. This communion represents the broken body of Jesus. The bread does. That, that symbolizes his sacrifice on the cross for us. And the cup represents his blood, which is this new covenant of grace that now, that now we walk in as Christians. A couple things about this meal, and then we'll receive it together. Is number one, this is a family meal. This is for Christians. And so if you're not a Christian, it's not like if you were to do it accidentally, it would, anything bad would happen to you. It's just worthless to you. And so if you're not a Christian, hey, this is kind of a family deal. So this is, you know, we're glad that you're here, but, but this is really important to us. And so if you're not a Christian, it's probably not something you should do. Secondly, if you are a Christian, this is not something that you, you should just take lightly. Like, oh, yeah, communion. We used to do this every I'm going to look for the cup with the most juice in it or whatever. You know what I mean? We just get in this crazy little rote tradition. If you're a Christian, what we're doing here is we're remembering Ephesians 2. The message of that beautiful passage that... That we were once lost and now Christ has died for us. And we're remembering that we are now under grace. And that when we receive this little piece of bread and this little cup of juice, we proclaim the resurrection 
and the king of all kings. And to do that, we should examine our lives. Not that we're perfect in any way, but we honestly look and say, has my salvation kind of terminated on myself? And am I really, if we could be honest, sort of living selfishly? Maybe the Spirit of God is putting His finger on your heart right now saying, hey, you're here, but man, you've got to connect and you've got to contribute. Maybe you're just kind of checking this place out or you've been kind of one of those ninja Christians who's in and out all the time. And the Spirit of God is just putting His finger on your heart to examine your life and say, come on, come on, you need to lean forward into the body of Christ. We're going to do that. And so in just a moment, the guys are going to come, we're going to pray, and we'll all receive communion together. Um, Guys, come on back. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have made us part of a family. You have, as Galatians 4 says, and as Romans 8 says, you've adopted us as sons and daughters. You had something far greater in mind than just our personal salvation for those of us who know you. You had this beautiful... Far from perfect, beautiful mess called the body of Christ that you are inviting us into. And God, because we live in the Bible Belt, we so often take that for granted and we just, we just kind of act like this is what we do. And God, would you jolt us from that? And would you give every person that's in this room that's a Christian a renewed sense of how vital it is for them to be with white, hot intensity connected to the body of Christ. God, if there's some repentance that needs to take on, take, to happen according to those lines, then God, let us repent. If there's a lackadaisicalness about us regarding the body of Christ, let us repent. If there's a critical nature in our hearts about other churches, let us repent. If there's bitterness in our heart about some church that maybe we were previously at, God, let us repent because it is the bride of Christ. And then as we repent, God, let us come forward and receive this meal with gladness and gravity and joy. And God, if somebody in this room is realizing that they're not yet a Christian, God, I pray that they would do what we talked about earlier, that they would receive the grace that has been presented them today that I believe you're bringing to their hearts and God would they respond in faith the Bible says that if we will if we will receive you if we will believe in our hearts which is more than just again cognitive agreement but if we will believe turning from our self-reliance and turning towards you in trust and faith that we will be saved I'm certain that there's a crowd this size, there's people in this room that have not done that yet. And God, would you, with the arrow of your word, would you, with your Holy Spirit, penetrate a callous, unbelieving, previously ignorant heart, and would you bring them to life right now? And would they believe? And would you, as Ephesians 2 says, would you make them alive? And then when they come out of that that birth canal, God, would the first cry of their heart be faith in Jesus. And would they then walk with you and God, would we as a church come around them or wherever they may be a part of God, would they find themselves connected to the body of Christ? But God, right now we take this meal.
with gravity and with gladness as we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We pray it in Jesus' name.